0: Uh, I'm going to invite Gary to come and read our scripture today. Today's a little different than some days because we're in this y'all saint season. Uh, you can come up here. Um, in which we zoom in and focus on some of these holy lives in Christ in certain times and in certain places to help inspire in us an imagination and a vision for how God is working in our lives by the Spirit to form us into Christ's likeness. So Gary's going to read from uh,
1: a parable in Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that somebody hid in a field, which someone else found and covered up. It's full of joy. The finder sold everything and brought that field. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. They said to him, Yes. Then he said to them, Therefore, every legal expert who has been trained as a disciple for the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings old and new things out of their treasure chests. Okay, okay. <clears throat> when Jesus finished these parables, he departed. When he came to his hometown, he taught the people in their synagogue. They were surprised and said, Where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get the power to work miracles? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother named Mary? Aren't James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas his brothers and his sisters? Aren't they here with us? Where did this man get all this? They were repulsed by him and fell into sin. But Jesus said to them, prophets are honored everywhere except in their own hometowns and in their own households. He was unable to do many miracles there because of their disbelief. That's the word of the Lord.
0: Nice, G. Um, so today we're zooming in on the life of a woman named Elizabeth Cotton. Uh, first, I'll start by uh, shouting out the um, Sandlot baseball team in Carborough for giving me the shirt, um, uh, particularly my friend Brad, who is a player coach in the mold of, you know, Pete Rose or someone like that. It's a very throwback crew. But they named their whole team after Elizabeth Cotton and her famous song. Um, Elizabeth was known as Leba, and Leba's life reads like a parable. Uh, stay, stay with me on this. It is a parable of treasure hidden in a field not very far from here. Parables make you wonder, and... Uh, they ask a lot of us. They beg for us to engage with them on their own terms and to enter into their world. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to tell the parable of Liba's life and try to enter a little bit into her world with some wondering questions, Allah, Godly Play. So Liba was born in January 1893. The exact date was a little iffy. We'll call it January 5th. And her mom was a midwife, her dad was a, <laughs> a dynamite setter, that's amazing, that job doesn't exist as much I think now as it used to. And her grandparents were enslaved persons who had been freed, her grandmother Hannah had like indigenous American blood in her. They called her Little Sis, her, last, her maiden name was Neville, Little Sis Neville as she was known. Uh, until she started school, And they asked her what her name was. And she realized she didn't have a name. (laughs) So out of of thin air, she just pulled out Elizabeth. I I really perished the thought of what my kids would name themselves if given the chance. (laughs) And she came up in Chapel Hill, at least as it was known then, right by the train tracks. If if you go into Carborough, you can still see some signage related to her. She, she wrote about when she first got to school, or uh, she, was, she said about this and they recorded what she said. She said, my parents didn't name me, they just called me Sis. You know, like when the teacher got to me, she said, little Sis, don't you have a name? And what is it? And I just said Elizabeth. I don't know where I got that name. So I put it down and they started calling me Elizabeth. You know, um, But it makes me wonder what it was like to not have a name. It makes me wonder what it's like to not even necessarily know your birthday, right? These are, these are some live questions, maybe, that could be in the back of your head. So Elizabeth's Chapel Hill, now known as Carborough, but we'll get to that, it was itself a place of hidden treasures, but out of necessity. As a much older woman, Elizabeth told this story, she recounted that um, whenever her household was fortunate enough to be able to afford and eat meat, uh, her dad would cut the meat off the bone and bury it in the yard <laughs> for later. Literally cover it with dirt until it was time to cook it up because they were afraid that a white man would come by and take it away from them so they could just show him the bone with like a little scrap of meat still on it uh, and claim that it was already gone. She later recounted, in, uh, uh, not remembering, getting a whole lot of quote, roughness from white people where she grew up, but she also grew up knowing about treasures in hidden fields. She knew how treasures hidden in fields tasted. She, she knew that treasures hidden in fields were maybe even a necessity. And, and it formed a certain type of person to have to bury your dinner. It formed a person who was attentive and watchful, who was instituted into a ministry of noticing and a quiet faithfulness that was creative and improvisational and resourceful. This creativity and resourcefulness continued in her childhood when she was eight. And like a classic little sister, she was one of five. She would sneak into her older brother Claude's room and quote, borrow his banjo. And she was left-handed so she would flip it over and noodle and create and learn Upside down and backwards she 'd slip the banjo back where she found it, like so many younger, sneaky siblings that aren 't as sneaky as they think they really are, because the broken strings would always give her away, and Claude would you know be so frustrated with her i wonder i wonder I wonder what it would be like to grow up in a world that seems wrong handed, uh, a world that, that everything 's kind of upside down and backwards, or you have to do that to make it fit or to fit in. When Liba was 10 or 11, she worked the better part of a year doing chores, and she earned about 75 cents a month so she could go down the street and buy her own little Stella guitar. She'd play and play, again, upside down and backwards. She, she never restrung it or she never took lessons. She just adapted and listened and played and played until the sounds that she could hear matched the sounds in her head and also matched the chug and the rhythm of the freight train right outside of her home. She was about 11 when she wrote the tune that she's known for, Freight Train. It's a ditty of, of longing for another place, but it's, it's really deeply situated in the place that she was. It's, it's beautiful and it's haunting. It was simple enough to be written by an 11-year-old, but also deep and profound enough to ignite the imaginations of folk's folk and blues luminaries, people like Leadbelly and Woody Guthrie and Muddy Waters and Joan Baez and Peter, Paul, and Mary and Bob Dylan and Alice Gerrard and Rhiannon Giddens and The Grateful Dead, and the list goes on. Like, homework. Go home and listen to Freight Train and then turn on um, Paul Simon's The Boxer and tell me if you he hear... Things that sound a little similar, right? I wonder what, it, why that freight train was so inspiring to this little girl. I wonder why that song has become so inspiring to so many since. At age thirteen, Liba got baptized. She she came into Rock Hill Baptist Church. Um, it was one. It was. Once, it's not there anymore, but it was once located in what's now a parking lot on Franklin Street for a really nice restaurant, RIP Church Buildings. It's here she learned to write and play church songs. It's here she was also told that she could no longer play the devil's music by that deacon at that church. That's a freezing cold take that just did not age well, right? But she was so serious about her Faith in Jesus and she was so obedient to her church leadership that she laid down that Stella guitar Two years later, she married Frank Cotton and they had their first baby uh, Lily when she was 16 not as weird as it sounds now then Um, But she wouldn't play that guitar again except for the occasional church performance for about 40 years a treasure hidden in a field I wonder what it felt like for Liba to be told to put something down that she loves. When learning about the lives of some saints, you, <laughs> you have to read volumes of their work. Like if you're trying to do this sermon or a sermon like this on someone like Augustine of Hippo or St. Thomas Aquinas, you don't really <laughs> have to wonder what they thought about God, Right? or how their lives were being changed by the Spirit as they walked with Jesus. They'll tell you if you have enough time to read. Uh, but with others like Leba, we only have their prayers. We only have their songs. There are these huge gaps in these silences and these long stretches that we don't hear much. For, for Leba, it was like 40 years before we heard much. Some of the reason for that was the time before technology, before social media, before we could tell what someone ate for breakfast or what their hottest take was on anything that occurred. But some of the reason was also that she was a young black woman in the South and her life was hidden. It was hidden also in the work of being a mother, being a wife, being a householder. In some ways, that hidden life was unremarkable, but in others, it's, it's timeless. It's never far from the lives of the poor and those who are, whose lives are wrapped in vocations of caring for others. Her life was also hidden by her church community. There's, there's a real bittersweetness here. I hope you, I hope you can see that. His community ignited her faith, but it also suppressed her, her tremendous gift. One wonders who she might have been had this treasure not been hidden. One also has to, to, to an extent, admire her devotion, her humility. I can't help but draw some parallels to the gaps we have in the, live, in the life of Jesus in the Gospels, and also Jesus' tenuous relationship with his local worshiping community. There are these long, unrecorded stents. Jesus is born, the Magi come, Several years later, he shows up at the temple as a 12-year-old. Several decades later, he shows up to be baptized in the Jordan River and to preach good news to the poor, right? We have all of these blanks. The very faith community that nurtured Jesus in his youth also conspired towards his death on the cross. These lives, Prophets not always received in their hometowns or their home churches are cautionary tales for church folk like us. They invite us to live in this tension that church communities can be both places of life-giving flourishing, but also places that can traumatize. So like her guitar playing, Leba presents a backwards and upside-down way of engaging. She fits in, she adapts, she creatively makes do and makes something not ideal, beautiful, and new. This energy was channeled into her relationships and into her work for several decades. And I can't help but contrast that with another uh, figure of her time. Contrast her gentleness and her train-like rhythmic living to another of her, like, kind of roughly contemporaneous people in her place. A guy named Julian Carr. does anyone know about Julian Carr? Does anyone know Carborough? <laughs> right? Has anyone been to Duke? Yes. Um, Julian Carr was an industrialist. He was a philanthropist. He was a tobacco magnate. He's who Carborough is named after, along with several buildings uh, on both campuses of Duke and UNC. Carr Mill Mall in Carborough is named after him. Among the many things that Carr was famous for in his time, he was a partner in Blackwell Bull City Tobacco Company. Should ring a bell. He was nominated to be the Vice President of the United States of America in 1900. He was the largest single donor also to the Silent Sam Confederate Alumni Monument on UNC's campus. If you've lived here for a few years, you've heard a little about that. He was also the one who funded the building of Rock Hill Baptist Church, their second building that Lebo was baptized in. Presumably, he funded it to make room for his business venture where the first one stood. Carr was a very well-known Christian. He poured immense amounts of money and resources into funding missionaries, sending Bibles to China, and he was also a very well-known white supremacist. He's vocally supported the KKK. He he spoke favorably about the Wilmington Massacre. He opposed the 15th Amendment that gave black men the right to vote. All of these things are true. I don't care to read the words from the Silent Sam dedication. If you have the stomach for them, they are easily found. They are truly disgusting. But it's also true that this man helped to start North Carolina Central University. Duke University, Trinity UMC downtown, Davison, Wake Forest, Elon, Greensboro and others. A lot of good and ambitious things were done by Julian Carr and his family. Rarely did he have to adapt to his surroundings. He was rarely put upon or made to submit to the authority of someone else. He was was known for making things happen by force or by resources. If you knew, he, he, he was also, that's him, um, the second on the left in, in that hat, and he, he had like a monocle, and he called himself the General. Um, uh, if you knew General Carr, and you made a good enough pitch to, them, to him, it was a good way to get what you wanted too. Carr knew so much about treasure. He didn't know a whole lot about hiddenness. <laughs> It was astounding to me to see the ways that these two lives intersected a little bit in the contrast, in their shape, and the ways that their faith in Jesus operated in each of their lives. It it makes me just wonder, and I, I don't have a good answer to this wondering, it makes me wonder how we can remember well the lives of holy ones in Christ who did and said things that aren't very holy. It it makes me wonder how we can see ourselves as saints, holy ones in Christ, when we don't do or say things that are very holy. That should should bug you. It bugs me. So flash forward many years. Leba has moved to Washington, D.C. and is working in a department store when a little white girl wanders off from her family, hidden, buried in the clothes racks, and Leba finds little Peggy Seeger and returns her to her mom, who rejoices to get her back. That sounds like a parable in and of itself, right? They connect, and Leba starts to work for the Seegers as their nanny. I think there's a picture of one of the Seegers. Yeah, that's Mike. Some time goes by, and Leba is delighted to be working in a house with these kind folks who also happen to be like the royal family of the emerging folk scene of the 50s and 60s. Ruth Crawford Seeger is a composer, and Charles Seeger is an ethnomusicologist. Mike Seeger, who's pictured, is a folklorist. Pete Seeger is a folk singer and activist. Um, note in this picture, they're playing; they're each playing the guitars upside down and backwards. Libba the quote right way, and Mike says, "I think I got it this time, Leva." <laughs> he, he doesn't have it, right? So, she's working in this musical house, and there's always music happening. There's instruments everywhere, musicians coming through to play and to record. She started to pick up guitars for lullabies, for crowd control, parents, can I get an amen? And then her free time, and she played it like she always did, upside down and backwards. And what would come to be known and imitated by her distinctive cotton-picking style, and I'll, I'll, I'll blow Toph up for a sec, that he's, play, he's playing some version of that today, like every song, and that's the Easter egg, so good job, Toph. A way, to, way to pick up the assignment. Awesome. Needless to say, though, these, these folkies, the Seegers, they took notice. And they moved Liba from the periphery to right in the center when these bluesmen and folksters would come through. She became like part of the jam sessions. A hidden treasure had been uncovered. Uh, Laura Veers, who's a folk singer out in Portland, she has a great line in her kids' book. She says, Soon the whole house was turned upside down and backwards, just like she plays. the The children were clearing the dishes and washing up. The bluesmen were winging Liba's songs and Ruth was playing along, everyone wanted to hear Liba's music. This was an inversion of the order of things. A grown Peggy Seeger reflected that Liba was her music, that when she started to play, she was no longer the, quote, help. I wonder what it felt like for Liba to be encouraged in her music when she had previously only been discouraged. I wonder what it felt like for her to be seen and centered and have the way others looked at her drastically changed. I wonder if that made her proud. I wonder if it made her embarrassed. She was 62 years old when she recorded her first album. Then she played the Newport Folk Festival. She won a Grammy. She's a Heritage Fellow, and last night, the, the 5th of November, 2022, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How cool is that? Her story is truly a parable of a hidden treasure, of a, also of a hidden life in Christ that peeks through and shines, a person who displays rare grace even in the ways she remembers some of the people who so clearly subjugated or wronged her. In Liba's life, we see... Jesus, the parable teller, the prophet who was not received well in his hometown during his time. It took Leba more than 40 years and a move to DC to be quote unquote discovered. She wrote the song when she was 11. I love the part of our passage today from Matthew's gospel that when Jesus finished telling the string of parables, he departed. (laughs) And when he came to his hometown, he taught people in the synagogue and they were surprised and said, where did he get this wisdom from? Where did he get this power to perform these miracles? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother named Mary? Aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, aren't they with us? Where did this man get all this? It says they were repulsed by him and fell into sin. There's a real struggle to see the gifts and the goodness in the presence of God when there is familiarity. This happened to Jesus, and it happens all the time to us. Lives like Leba's challenge us to see more clearly, to see better, to move from being baffled, him, her, to rejoicing. It says Jesus' crowd was repulsed by someone they thought they knew all about and that he might speak with such authority and such creativity. He, I, I think they were, were just feeling that, that snag that, that he might reflect back on them something they didn't want to see about themselves. So this caused them to sin. It caused them to be angry. It caused them to become violent. It caused them to give in to self-protection, to move fast and break things rather than to slow down and mend. It, 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 It prevented them from being able to create a song with the rhythm of the train outside of their window. Like this is parable stuff picking up the things around us and understanding that God is, is with us and God is doing something, even here and even now. The, our passage says, the head of a household who brings old and new things out of the treasure chest. That's what God is doing in our midst. So Leba also is kind of a gentle prophet in her hometown. She displays the, the hiddenness of the truth that longs to be revealed. She's the product of a church that served to both inspire her and to suppress her. She, that church was the product of Carr's white supremacist Christianity and his paternalism, but it was also the seedbed for Leba's inspirational music that outlives both of them. This is remarkable stuff. It shouldn't be lost on us that while Carr's name is being stripped off of the Doorways of halls, cottons is being added to a hall of fame, like now. There is such power in reversals like this, upside down and backwards. Like Jesus himself, in the lives of many saints, their goodness and the profundity of their lives is rarely grasped during their time. The way they live is too strange. It's irrelevant, it's too small, it's too weak. But God uses foolish things to shame the wise, uses weak things to shame the strong. This should give us a desire to see. It should give us a desire to give people their flowers now. Especially those who are least, last, lost, littlest, and closest to death. Julian Carr's story should also give us pause when we don't encounter friction, when things are too easy, when everything always just kind of works for us, when we need to manufacture narratives about how the world works or build monuments to our own goodness rather than quietly and persistently continue to invest in God's kingdom. Wendell Berry has a poem, and it's got this line that I always think of. It says, the impeded stream sings. The impeded stream sings. And lives like Leba's sing so beautifully precisely because of their hiddenness and the many impediments put in front of them. And her song continues. It, it echoes, not just from Tof's guitar, but it, it echoes over the syncopated notes of a guitar played upside down and backwards that echoes into this world that God is making new. Will you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for these lives that are really different from ours, but um, not far from us. We give you thanks for um, Elizabeth and for the many saints who live with you and um, cheer us on and um, want to welcome us uh, into Christ's presence. Uh, We thank you for the inspiration of uh, Liba's hidden life and um, what a treasure she was and is. Uh, Lord, open our eyes uh, that we can see. Uh, make us courageous um, to um, sell all that we have and all that we know um, for these hidden treasures. Uh, thanks for Jesus and for your spirit that shows us how to live and helps us into Christ-likeness. Uh, Lord, continue to craft us into the exact version of Jesus for each of us. Uh, Equip us in this community to appreciate and to empower uh, these saints. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.